You're listening to Growl at GreylockGlass.com. Yeah, we haven't growled much yet, but we show our fangs when we do. Welcome to episode number two. I'm your host, the Mongrel, known among hominids as JV. We've no need for mongrels and radical ideas. Off with you, new. Off with you. Off with you. <laughs> nah, sorry, Jock. I'm just getting started, saying what has to be said. And what has to be said is that net neutrality is about to be gutted from fore to aft thanks to the new Federal Communications Commission head, Ajit Pai and his masters in the cult of deregulation. Now, you may recall that way back in 2015, this hopelessly unsexy topic managed to whiplash the attention of millions of Americans. Uh, thanks in part to John Oliver of HBO's Last Week Tonight, consumers were shocked into the realization that Evil communications monopolies and their minions in Congress and the FCC were doing what evil corporate oligarchs do. Be evil. Surprisingly, a raging swell of backlash from the indignant denizens of the interwebs, amounting basically to just getting up off their asses and writing emails and making phone calls, sent those no-goodniks and their dastardly plans back to their evil lairs. Unfortunately, like an army of Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers, and every stinking extra from The Walking Dead, the corporate ghouls have returned. Now, as you may have noticed, we're living in upside-down land these days, and we don't have what you'd call a sympathetic majority in any branch of federal government. So we have to summon our inner zombie hunters again and this time, we better be loaded for bear. So, I didn't screw around when I was looking for guests for this episode. I lined up three of the country's most respected voices on net neutrality to help us all understand the history, the issues, potential consequences for vanquishment. John Brodkin, senior IT editor at Ars Technica, is an award-winning journalist who covers a wide array of IT and tech policy topics. He's been following the battle for an open internet for a long time now. Uh, Kate Forsey, Associate Policy Counsel, Government Affairs, for the organization Public Knowledge. She advocates for the public interest on internet and technology policy and government affairs, including net neutrality, spectrum policy, and other issues critical to preserving an open internet and consumer digital rights. And finally, Matt Wood, Policy Director at Free Press, has worked to help shape their policy team's efforts to protect the open internet, prevent media concentration, promote affordable broadband deployment, and safeguard press freedom. He's served as an expert witness before Congress on multiple occasions. And I have, of course, included links in the show notes to each of their profiles at their respective organizations. Now, I considered inviting Mr. Pye or a spokes troll from the FCC on the show to belch out the standard anti-regulation tropes and schemes, but I, I confess I did not 
want to listen to the sound of corporate zombie lung bubbling in my headphones for 20 minutes. And I, I didn't think you'd want to hear it either. Doesn't matter. The chairman's views are clear, they're available, and you can seek them out. I'll even drop a couple of links to Pine Company's position in the notes. Just have a wastebasket or a paper bag at the ready, huh? Now, I want to explain that I recorded these conversations early in the year and intended to release this episode long ago. For the life of me, I can't remember what started it off, but a flood of outrageous bullshit came pouring out of the White House that week. And I didn't want to get the story to get lost um, in in all the headlines. And by the time there was a break in the news cycle, the net neutrality issue had kind of cooled down. This very week, however, marks the second historic National Day of Action, July 12th, to protect net neutrality. I've got scads of goodies in the show notes, including uh, John Oliver's hilarious, impassioned 2015 plea. I've got DJ Ted Stevens' techno remix, A Series of Tubes. Uh, I've got links to resources that'll help you sound like a net neutrality professor by the time you're done. And I've got ways for you to join the millions of other zombie fighters uh, in resisting the evil online and in real life. Now, of the 250 or so podcast episodes I've produced, this is probably the most serious freaking business one ever, since the outcome of this battle for the web may well determine if it's even worth it for me to continue. Now, I reached all of our guests by Skype separately, but at times they kind of sound as if they're responding to each other, and I meant to do that. And that's what you can do when you have three people who all know what the hell they're talking about on a given topic. You'll hear me almost not at all for the rest of the show because I really don't want to take any attention away from these three very generous experts. So with that, let's get started. John Brodkin, with whom I had the pleasure of working many years ago, explains the basics behind net neutrality. Basically, it's the idea that your internet service provider, whether it's you know a home internet like Comcast or... Um a wireless provider like Verizon Wireless or T-Mobile. It's just the idea that they're not supposed to discriminate against certain types of content or promote other promote certain types of content above others. So I, ultimately, it just it's really just three rules. You can't block anything, can't throttle something, make it go really slow, and there's no there's a rule against paid prioritization, which is the idea that a company like, say, Netflix or a website would pay the internet service provider to get, you know, much better access to to consumers. Those are the actual rules. Given how many points of contact the internet has in our lives, it sounds like you might want more than just government oversight of the telecoms, right? Enter Kate Forsey. So Public Knowledge is a uh, Washington, D.C.-based digital advocacy group. Um, on, you know, We're a nonprofit, and we work for the consumer interest. What that means is we cover a lot of different issues in the digital environment. Uh, that means you know, net neutrality, as we're going to discuss here today, as well as um, you know, competition issues in media, uh, video competition, spectrum competition, and intellectual uh, property policy as well. Forsey reminds us that back in the day, net neutrality was taken for granted. There wasn't a word for it. It was 
just the state of things. Well, so, you know, net neutrality has actually been around a bit longer in sort of a, a conceptual way because of the fact that the internet started as a neutral network. And then it's, it started to come to the forefront in 2005 when they had the internet policy statement of 2005, which codified four principles that had up to that point been considered just assumed on the internet. Uh, so that's non-discrimination, that's transparency, that's not blocking, you know, everything moves over the pipes at the same speed. Then in 2008, it came to light that certain internet providers were preferring certain content over others in a way that was deemed unlawful, or at least that's what consumer advocates like public knowledge believed. So they filed against it. It turned out that the court did not agree that the internet policy statement was binding as a matter of law. And so that is sort of what gave rise to the entire net neutrality debate. Joining public knowledge in the struggle to defend net neutrality are various other groups with slightly different but often overlapping missions. Matt Wood gives us an overview of free press. We are probably best known for net neutrality, but we've been around for almost 15 years now working on behalf of real people uh, when it comes to these media and technology policies and trying to make sure that their voices are heard in Washington in these debates that affect how they use the internet uh, the kinds of news they get, the kinds of entertainment choices that are available to people across the country. We work a lot at the Federal Communications Commission that helps to set policies for both traditional broadcasting and internet use as well. Uh, we go to Congress, we try to make sure that we're pounding the pavement up there on Capitol Hill, but also bringing in constituents, uh, whether those stories are coming in electronically or on a phone call or even sometimes in person with visits that we can help arranged so that lawmakers have to sit down with their constituents and hear not just from lobbyists for the biggest companies, but also from the real people affected by their decisions. Wood observes that despite a gradual shift in the tectonics of the internet, the basic tenets of fairness existed alongside those of freedom since the frontier era. Yeah, you know, I think at the outset there was more of a non-commercial ethos. You know, I, I, I can't transport myself back and you know, sort of get into people's thought process about whether they thought they would stay that way. Um, but I think that commercialized or not, the Internet's always been the same, and that's really what net neutrality aims to do is to keep it the same, not because the wires themselves have been entirely unregulated. I mean, when you talk about Prodigy or all the dial-up services, you know, those were provided to people or available to people is probably a better way to say that, over these lines that the phone company owned, and those were regulated, and they were regulated so that the phone company wouldn't have the choice about who you call or, or what you say. Basically, as long as you're staying on the network and not causing any harm and not trying to plug something into the network that's harmful, uh, you know, if, if the device works, you're allowed to use it, and if you can think of it, you're allowed to say it. And that's really what we've always had. Uh, what changed was eventually the companies providing Internet access instead of being AOL or Prodigy or anybody else that was using the phone system, uh, became the phone and then the cable companies themselves. And that's really where we started to see the threat to what we've always had, uh, which is an open network where the content is free to flow, but not because the network itself is entirely you know, market-driven or unregulated, and in fact, just the opposite. 
We've had these safeguards in place that say they have to carry the speech and ideas of others. And while that's not popular with everybody in Washington, it's actually pretty popular around the country. You know, it's, it's good economic policy and, and good civic hygiene to not let the network owner decide what's allowed to be said on their network. So when did the trouble begin? The current debate probably is when Comcast was caught blocking, or not blocking, but throttling BitTorrent traffic. I think that happened around 2007. And um, the Federal Communications Commission tried to punish Comcast. It went to court, and I think the court decided that the FCC went too far. It couldn't actually punish Comcast. So this all led to a an attempt to impose rules that could apply going forward. And in 2010, they came up with rules that were um, basically pretty similar to what I said before, but a little bit weaker. And this is where an explanation of the differences between this Title I and Title II thing you'll be hearing about for the next 60 days would come in real handy. Kate explains. Title I provides ancillary authority to the FCC. What that means is they were able to invoke Title I to use a clause from 706, Section 706, which says that the FCC must act in the public interest in order to sort of codify the rules that had been just sort of written down in the Internet Policy Statement of 2005. And then Verizon sued, and in, I think it was 2014, the court ruled in favor of Verizon, which eliminated the net neutrality rules. So there was there were no rules left, except for some transparency things, which are unrelated to what I previously mentioned. So then at that point, the FCC had to decide what legal authority do we use, and they ended up doing something pretty controversial, which is reclassifying broadband providers as common carriers, which is a designation that was traditionally used to regulate utilities like AT&T, phone network. And so they did what they called a light touch common carrier regulation. So it allowed them to impose the rules against blocking, throttling, and paid prioritization. But they didn't also do some of the more extreme things like rate regulation. Like they don't tell Comcast exactly what rate they can charge. So what's sort of interesting about this is that after the original Comcast decision came out in 2010, the common theory was that, all right, well, we'll all ask them to reclassify as common carriers under Title II. So it started as Title II would be sure to pass. But the current chairman at the time, Julius Janikowski, uh, ended up trying to kind of create a compromise between all of the, the public interest groups and the edge providers, you know, the Googles and the Facebooks, and the ISPs, so Verizon and Comcast, uh, to not do Title II, but instead create this middle ground, which also did not include wireless. So once Verizon sued over that, the FCC had no way to move forward other than to reclassify under Title II if they wanted to do real net neutrality. And that 2015 decision, it was appealed by essentially the entire broadband industry, and then the FCC won in court last year. Remember that while a lot of this early sausage-making was going on, many in Congress admitted that, that 
Hell, they were proud that they'd never used the internet. Even for those who were charged with overseeing the thing, such as the late Ted Stevens, chairman of the Senate Commerce Committee, showed a pretty thin grasp of what the internet was back in 2006. Tell me, do enough lawmakers today actually have enough of a clue to be trusted with our digital future? Is allowing all of these uh, entities that support this uh, to provide streaming stuff going on, on, the, on the, the internet. They want to deliver vast amounts of information over the internet and again, the internet is not something that you just dump something on. It's not a big truck. It's, it's a series of tubes. And if you don't understand, those tubes can be filled. And if they're filled, when you put your message Probably in, better than they did. I mean, it seems like the Democrats have a pretty good understanding of how the internet works. The Republicans, I don't know, maybe they do, but they're also, they, they just tend not to whatever their technical level understanding, they just don't support consumer protections to the same level that Democrats do. They tend to feel that internet providers should be allowed to do what they want or that regulation prevents them from investing. That that tends to be their view. Yeah, I mean, the, there are some what has been have been called bright line rules in the net neutrality order that the FCC handed down in 2015. One of those prevents blocking. And we have seen that or effectively that kind of blocking. Uh, one of the greatest examples is what Comcast itself was doing back in 2007. They weren't outright blocking access to websites, but they were uh, essentially shutting down connections by using a little bit of technical trickery behind the scenes uh, in order to prevent file sharing. And, you know, the, the claim they made was that things violated copyright or it was using up too much bandwidth. and. Uh, we were able to show that those claims were either overblown or just outright false. So they can shut down connections to particular websites because they have to know where you're going, right? It's almost like a, a post office analogy. It, the cable or phone company has to know the address you're trying to reach in order to get you there. And if they want, they could just block all deliveries to that address, just block all traffic to a particular website or, or class of websites or applications. A little bit less... Uh, I don't know what, in your face aggressive, but not much less, would be them slowing down access to those websites or applications um, or you know, doing other things to try to speed up the services that they like and the content that they themselves own. Comcast is probably happier when you're watching Comcast content online rather than some other competitor. Um, so slowing down, speeding up, the kinds of you know, prioritization and throttling, uh, those are also covered by the the bright line net neutrality rules that the FCC adopted. And then beyond that, it can get even more uh, into the network and into the weeds, literally and figuratively sometimes as we're getting deeper into the network. Um, but, you know, everything they do that affects the end user is of concern to us. So even if they're not messing with your connection, they're not slowing down traffic on the line that runs from their network into your house, uh, they can be turning down the volume on the opposite end. And we've seen that in the disputes that Comcast and Verizon and AT&T and others have had with companies like Netflix and Amazon. Uh, so basically anything they can do to squeeze the traffic in ways that are not really uh, natural. I mean, there are some bandwidth limitations, but when people pay for speed, they should get that speed no matter what kind of content they're choosing to, to use it on. 
and that's not always in the cable and phone company's bottom line interest because they would like you to stay in, t in their walled garden and not necessarily venture outside of it if they have ways to incentivize you to stay there. One of the ways that we've thought about it, and this partially becomes, uh, or this partially comes out of, frankly, uh, the dissent in the 2005 Brandex uh, decision from Antonin Scalia, which is, the, the pizza analogy. So you don't want your phone carrier to be able to make a sweetheart deal with Domino's where they're going to pass your call through to Domino's right away. But the mom and pop pizza shop down the street that may have better pizza or may have the same pizza, but may have better pizza, they don't get the same rights of carriage. So you're prioritizing Domino's. So the consumers are going to end up choosing Domino's over the mom and pop every time because they don't like the wait time. Yeah, I mean, cable in particular, they have essentially, you know, w without getting rung up for violating the country's antitrust laws somehow, uh, they have divided up the market geographically on a nationwide basis. So, you know, if people live in, in western Massachusetts and are, have a charter or whatever they're calling their service now. Spectrum, I think, is the, the brand name they try to use for the Internet service. But Charter Cable is there. You know, Comcast is, is in Boston, and those two companies have a nod and a wink kind of agreement not to cross over into each other's territories and try to take each other's customers. Uh, in some places, people have two choices because the historical phone companies like AT&T and Verizon, the, uh, the descendants of Ma Bell, if you want to call them that, you know, they have, to some extent, been able to build out and compete with cable, uh, but not everywhere. And even a company as big as Verizon, which is a $100 billion annual company, uh, is essentially giving up on that. You know, we've seen them actually selling off their wired networks, even when they've gone to the trouble of putting fiber down on the ground and producing something that is not just competitive with cable, but better than cable. So in reality, most people have two options if they're lucky for wired high-speed broadband maybe a couple more wireless options, but that's about it. And so the notion that the magic of the marketplace is all that we need to keep these companies in line uh, is just false. You know, if, if your internet service provider blocks your access to a particular website or a particular kind of online service, you might have somewhere else to turn at great expense and inconvenience to another provider, but you probably don't. And so that's yet another reason that keeping these basic communications rights in place is important. I would say they're important even if it's not a monopoly, but many people do face what's essentially a monopoly for their access to the Internet and can't turn to somebody else if that provider decides to interfere with them and to block their access to the, the goods and services they want online. The incumbent ISPs have made no secret of the fact they would like to continue their incumbent model their incumbent business models over consumers. You know, they have a vested interest in ensuring that they continue to make money, um, especially when you're in an environment where there's increasing media consolidation, not just on a, you know, ISP to ISP level, but also a vertical level where the people who are giving access are now also controlling what content uh, gets across. Because if, if you're a company who has certain content, 
you're going to have a vested interest in blocking other content. So they're doing runarounds. The question is, do we want an environment where we have two, maybe three gigantic companies who control everything? We go back to the cable age or, um, you know, do we want to continue the environment that we've seen in the, which we first saw in the nascent internet age where people like you, people like the YouTube channels are able to get to consumer eyeballs without the media incumbents being able to choose who wins and loses. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the internet is not just about entertainment and cultural understanding as important as those are. It is about political organizing and free speech and the free dissemination of ideas too. And I think especially with the Trump administration, but really anytime, you know, we should all be mindful of that maybe first and foremost and, and not just thinking about net neutrality or any of these technology policy debates as a clash of titans where, you know, we just get in a room and we fight it out and see who gets a bigger piece of the pie, Comcast or, or Google. And that, that's the way it's often covered in the popular press and the trade press, but we certainly see net neutrality as a fundamental right that belongs to Internet users themselves. And if they choose to go to Netflix or if they choose to come to listen to your show or if they choose to you know, go read the news either at NPR or Breitbart for that matter, uh, they should have that choice. It shouldn't be uh, somebody sitting at corporate headquarters in any giant Internet company who makes that choice for them. We have had in the past more of a nonpartisan or at least bipartisan coalition defending that neutrality. And I think you kind of see the seeds of that today. You know, I don't really trust any campaign promises from our newly installed president, but he said on the campaign trail he was worried about media consolidation too. And we see the ugly side of this in the attacks on journalists and on you know, so-called fake news, which is now a charge that people just kind of toss around when they don't agree with the viewpoint, in addition to being a real problem uh, when it comes to unsourced and untrue stuff being put out there for profit online. Uh, but you know, the fact that this president's attacking journalists is one problem. You know, when he says that AT&T or Comcast or NBC, for that matter, has too much power, uh, that's actually true. You know, we have to find ways to deal with that as well. And, and if they have the power not only over what they air on their own TV channels, but over what you can find on the Internet, uh, not only will they use that for their economic gain, they might use it for political reasons too. So we've seen this kind of thing in other countries more typically. Uh, there aren't many examples I can cite in the U.S. of websites being shut down for purely political purposes. Um, but it has happened, and you know, oftentimes it's corrected relatively quickly when it comes to public attention. Uh, there was a good example of uh, it wasn't even access to the website; it was text messaging being sent out by a pro-choice group in the mid-2000s, and, and Verizon decided to block the messages coming from that group because they, you know, saw it as controversial or as too contentious to be sending out to customers, even when those customers had opted in to receive the messages from NARAL uh, was actually the group who was blocked there. Uh, just the other day, I heard about a story in Canada where uh, payments via PayPal were shut down because uh, the words Syrian and refugee appeared in the transaction. Well, it was actually a news story about a Syrian refugee. Uh, it wasn't any kind of connection to actual people. It was just basically, you know, some kind of algorithm triggering a response and, and blocking access to the payments for that site. 
merely based on the content of a news story uh, as judged by the computer, not by human eyes, most likely. Uh, that's the kind of dangerous situation we get, get into where speech is stifled and freedom of expression is lightly tossed aside, whether based on some kind of automated decision or some kind of actual political animus. Uh, it almost doesn't matter uh, when you're shutting people down based, again, not on whether they have a right to use the network or have paid their, their uh, monthly bill for, for broadband, but based on what they're saying or which words they're using. Frankly, the whole debate started as an issue about content, but at a large level, it's become about much more than that. Um, it's everyone who relies on the internet on a daily basis to participate in society. It's the participation in the democratic process that has been a highlight lately in particular, where you have Black Lives Matter being elevated to a national conversation, where the Women's March went from a few folks online saying, hey, let's do this, to it moving demonstrations on all seven continents, including Antarctica. Um, and uh, it's kids being able to get access to educational programs. All of that stems from this initial movement. Um, folks applying for health care, you can't apply for a job at almost any place, including McDonald's or a gas station, without being able to have access online. So that's really what we're talking about. Access. Equal access. Always comes down to that, right? Awesome when you got it. For some, it's even more awesome when you can control it. And the, the giant telecoms are living their own glorious wet dream since electorally installed President Trump appointed the industry's very own lumberjack, Ajit Pai. Unlike some of the, the crop of unqualified billionaires who swept into the cabinet, uh, Pai knows what he's doing. He, he's been at the FCC for a while. He was a lawyer at the FCC before he was a commissioner. He's worked on Capitol Hill. I, I think the funny thing for him is that when he was in the minority, because the Republicans had two seats when Obama was still president, you know, he, he never had enough process complaints. He could always seemingly, seemingly find one more and talk about lack of communication with the majority at the FCC or lack of transparency and how dare they take this step when I didn't agree with them. Uh, now that he's in the majority and has that power, you know, one of the first things he did was to roll back nine or ten different decisions and reports and investigations that were underway at the FCC. And he did it with basically no explanation on a Friday afternoon, like three o'clock essentially trying to bury it and to do it on paper and online, but without doing it at an open commission meeting where he would actually be facing the public and his fellow commissioners as well. Uh, so it's amazing that, you know, a little dose of power can oftentimes change people's views on just how transparent and open the government and the governance process should be. And that might have happened with Chairman Pai as well. He's been on the commission since, I think, 2012. Um, in the minority um, as a Republican. And so his views are well known. He opposed net neutrality. Um, he says that he favors an open internet, but he opposes Title II, which is the common carrier designation. But at the same time, he opposed net neutrality rules even before there was um, a proposal that involved the common carrier designation. So, I mean, he's 
it's it isn't even so much about people's fears. He's already said he wants to get the net neutrality rules overturned. He um whether that happens through Congress or the FCC, he on zero rating, he wants to allow that even if companies are charging other, you know, video providers who compete against their TV services money for the data cap exemptions. So, I mean, it's really just people are looking at what his actual record is as what his statements were when he was in the minority and what he's been doing ever since he became the chair. It's pretty clear if if you want net neutrality rules to be in place, this isn't an opinion. He's not the one to, he's, he's, not, he's not the chair that you want because he, he opposes them. You know, he has consistently voted against what we at least would perceive to be pro-consumer, pro-competition initiatives that came out of the past administration's FCC. I think it's important, though, as we stare this threat in the face, that we acknowledge that we're not powerless to stop it. You know, the FCC was moved, and in fact, Chairman Wheeler himself was moved from a relatively bad place when he first took the job and was faced with the net neutrality questions in 2014 to, as you said, becoming one of its biggest champions and, and one of the most effective chairs we've ever seen at the FCC for recognizing and reaffirming these communications rights. Uh, so the combination of you know, legal filings and political pressure inside of DC, but also popular pressure on the FCC and on Congress can do wonderful things. And as I said earlier, I think that it's important to remember how popular net neutrality and access to the internet on the same terms people have always enjoyed it, uh, j just how popular that really is outside the halls of Congress and the Federal Communications Commission. I think that you know, he wants to dismantle these protections and has said as much, but he won't have as easy a time doing that as maybe some people supporting Chairman Pai uh, would have hoped coming into the job. Before we pronounce ourselves doomed, let's take a trip back to 2015. Matt Wood thinks there's still plenty to justify that fighting spirit. You know, our challenge is to keep explaining to members of Congress and members of the public, for that matter, that this is the real deal. You know, the way the FCC did it in 2015 is the only way they can do it under current law. Uh, we can all hold our breath and wait for Congress to pass a new and better law, but that doesn't seem likely in the short term. And in the meantime, if people want to say, I like net neutrality, I just don't like these pesky rules and laws that we have in place to guarantee it, you know, that's a non-starter for us. This is an effective protection. It's kept the internet the way it's always been, which is open to free speech and innovation. And the notion that we should, uh, to borrow a phrase from another even more contentious policy fight, that we should somehow repeal and replace it with something better is a funny one. Uh, it's, it, I don't think there really is any need to replace it, of course, but those who suggest there is a replacement haven't really come up with anything that would preserve these communications rights that are so vital to our democracy and our economy, even as they continue to make a show about just how terrible and burdensome the existing rules are, and, and we've seen no evidence for that. It's just easy for people to claim that regulation is bad and to get away with it in some political circles and in some newspapers. Right now, I think the biggest thing that people can do is to, you know, call their congressman, call both senators, call their congressperson. It actually helps. I've been a staffer, and they take a tally, and they bring it to their bosses, and then those senators and congresspeople 
go to the floor and argue against a lot of these, uh, these problematic issues, or they call the FCC and say, you know, don't do like, you know, we oppose X, we oppose Y. Um, that type of activism really works as we saw with Sopapipa and as we saw with Title II. There's the 4 million Americans who commented on the last net neutrality ruling, and the Democrats are hoping that there will be even more the next time around. Uh, I think most people understand, Democratic, Republican, or neither, that Comcast and Verizon and AT&T can be just as much a threat to freedom of speech and to innovation as the government itself can be, and, and oftentimes even more. And so we've managed to organize people to come out and defend net neutrality against the assaults from the companies and also against this cynical but political approach. I mean, it's pretty simple. It's a, it's about do you want to be able to choose, once you're paying for your access, your internet access, do you want to be able to choose what content you view or do you want Comcast or Verizon or Frontier or whomever you subscribe to to be the one who's choosing, to be the one who's slowing down your connection or speeding up your connection based on what they want and what serves their bottom line. Well, Kate, when you put it that way, it does sound pretty simple. And getting more information about net neutrality is pretty simple, too. Just head on over to the show notes for this episode of Growl at greylockglass.com. In addition to bios on our guests, you'll find a link to John Brodkin's most recent article on the subject, Uh, You'll find a link to the central organizing location for the National Day of Action on July 12th. And last but not least, a link to the brilliant, the passionate Iron Age mystics who provided our intro song, You've Got the Power. And if you're ever feeling deflated about our chances of blowing up the Death Star, just fire up one of the mystics' ass-kicking anthems, and you'll be reaching for your favorite protest shoes soon. In fact, let's end this episode by relaunching You've Got the Power, because, well, hell, you do. I'm the Mongrel, and I'll be back with another episode of Growl soon. Till then, keep your hackles up. (laughs) 